when 45-year-old Timothy Schuster did not turn up for breakfast with his friend Mary Solis on the morning of the 10th of July 2003. Everyone immediately started to panic, as Tim had recently lost his job and was going through a messy divorce and a custody battle with his wife, Larissa Schuster. Police thought that maybe Tim had done something to harm himself. As the search for Tim continued, their hopes of finding him alive quickly disappeared, as they knew something was not right when his keys, wallet, car and phone were found abandoned at his house. Five days after his disappearance, everybody's worst fears were confirmed when devastatingly, Tim's half-dissolved body was found in a 55-gallon barrel filled with hydrochloric acid, hidden in a storage unit. Who owned this storage unit and who had murdered Tim Schuster so brutally? Had his divorce turned so bitter that his ex-wife Larissa could go this far? This is the brutal killing of Timothy Schuster. Larissa Foreman was born on the 1st of January 1960 and she grew up on a farm in Missouri. She went on to attend the University of Missouri and studied biochemistry. While studying, she worked as an aide at a hospital and here she met a nurse called Timothy Schuster. Larissa and Tim quickly got together and they married that same year in 1982. They had a daughter together called Kristen in 1985 and four years later, in 1989, they moved west to Fresno in California, where Larissa took a job as a biochemist at an agricultural research lab, and Tim took a job as a manager in the cardiology department at Fresno St. Agnes Medical Center. Larissa was the main bread earner of the family, and with her well-paying job, the couple bought a large house in the Fresno suburbs, and a year later, in 1990, they welcomed their son Tyler. Larissa was described as the boss at home and she was known to be very controlling and aggressive. Their daughter, Kristen, later said that Larissa was the disciplinarian in the home and she was a very domineering parent. Her father, Tim on the other hand, was the soft teddy bear that would let Larissa have her way. By 1997, Larissa noticed that the lab she was working at was starting to go downhill, so she decided to take matters into her own hands, and she opened her own laboratory called Central California Research Labs. Because of the family's success, they were then able to move to a larger home in Clovis in California in the year 2000. And by 2001, Larissa was earning twice Tim's annual salary. See if there's anybody home. Take your shoes off before you come in, please. Yeah, that's a typical request. And I'm going to turn the tour over to the boss. As Larissa kept very busy with her new lab, Tim's role at home became increasingly present, and he quickly became the person who was in charge of running the household. Larissa's standards were so high, however, that Tim struggled to meet them, and no matter what he did, it was never good enough for Larissa. By the time their daughter, Kristen, was a teenager, as any other normal teenager did at her age, Kristen began to start rebelling slightly, and Larissa was not happy. Without Tim's consent, Larissa decided to ship their daughter to Missouri so that she could stay with Larissa's parents. Tim was not happy with this, but naturally, Larissa made the final decision, and this caused a lot of tension between the couple. Over the next few months, Tim and Larissa started drifting more and more, and they soon stopped talking 
and the pair essentially became two people living their own separate lives under the same roof. But Larissa had had enough, and she wanted Tim out. In February of 2002, Larissa filed for divorce and she told Tim to get out. This time, however, Tim did not do what he was told and he refused to leave the house. He then hired a lawyer to help him fight over custody of their son Tyler and the splitting of their joint assets. By July of 2002, however, Larissa was awarded primary custody of Tyler and she was allowed to stay in the couple's home, so Tim had no other option but to move out on the 4th of July 2002. Before officially moving out, however, he decided to stand up for himself once more and he took matters into his own hands. Whilst Larissa was visiting her daughter Kristen and her parents, Tim took what he thought was his from the family home and left to his condo. When Larissa returned from her trip, she found her home half empty and she was furious. Larissa was so angry that Tim had gone and done this behind her back and had stood up to her. I want my grandmother's doilies and I better by God see those mixing bowls. By August of 2002, Larissa was struggling to look after her son Tyler as she had been so used to Tim being the one to look after Tyler. So therefore, she sought the help of her lab technician assistant, 21-year-old James Fagoni. James was said to be very passive and a shy guy, so Larissa was quickly able to get him to do exactly what she wanted. Not only did she start having James look after Tyler regularly and essentially become his babysitter, but she quickly made him start running errands for her and James was more than willing. Angry with Tim, having taken the belongings from the home, Larissa asked James to help her break into Tim's condo so that she could retrieve some of her belongings. So on the 10th of August, 2002, Larissa and James broke into Tim's property whilst he was out of town and not only did they retrieve some of the belongings, but they also trashed the property, pulling out drawers and taking a knife to his bedding. Tim also said that a report he had been using to document his involvement with Tyler for custody purposes was missing. Larissa was so pleased with herself and how she had gotten away with the robbery that she told her friends what she had done. She reportedly told her friend and manicurist, Terry Lopez, that she had gone back to the property a couple of times because it gave her a feeling, better than sex, to sit in a chair and see what she had done to the place. She said that she had also keyed Tim's pickup and that it was like a trophy and gave her a happy feeling every time she saw the key mark on the side of the truck. Immediately, Tim knew who had done this to his property, but he decided not to press charges because he just wanted to let go and to hopefully move on. But despite not pressing charges for the break-in, Tim continued to fight the divorce, and he contested every detail of the divorce proceeding, and this just enraged Larissa. A little while later, Tim moved to another house that was equipped with an alarm system and motion sensors because he expressed concern about Larissa. He also obtained a handgun and concealed weapon permit, Sadly for Tim, however, not only was he trying to move on with his life and to fight this vicious divorce and custody battle, but as it turned out, the hospital where he worked were planning to lay some staff off. And so, on the 9th of July 2003, Tim and his good friend Mary Solis lost their jobs, and when Larissa heard the news, she just laughed.
On the evening that Mary and Tim lost their jobs, they had dinner together. Mary and Tim then planned to have breakfast together the next morning around 10am following their exit interviews that they were due to have with HR. The next day, however, on the 10th of July, Tim did not make it to his scheduled exit interview nor to the planned breakfast afterwards with Mary Solis. Mary was naturally worried for her friend and she tried to ring him, but she couldn't get through to him. So she and her husband, Bob, called their mutual friend, Vic, and they asked Vic to go round to Tim's house and to see if he was okay. Vic immediately went over and checked, but Tim was nowhere to be found and his pickup was still in the garage. Vic then became increasingly concerned when he saw Tim's cell phone sitting on the dresser as Tim never went anywhere without his cell phone. He always carried it around in case his children needed him. Later that day, Tim was supposed to retrieve his son Tyler from Larissa, but he never showed up. Vic then spoke to Mary and Bob Solis, and by that afternoon, they called the police, and officers were sent out to Tim's home. At the property, however, they could not find Tim dead or alive, but they did find his keys and wallet alongside his cell phone, which immediately raised more red flags. Despite everyone's fears that something bad had happened to Tim, or that Tim had maybe even harmed himself, Mary and Bob were told that they had to wait 24 hours to file a missing person report. So once the 24 hours were up, Mary and Bob filed an official missing persons report. With Tim officially being classed as a missing person, the police jumped straight into asking questions to those closest to him. Detectives quickly found out about the volatile divorce that was pending, so naturally they asked Larissa to come down to the police station that Friday evening so that they could talk to her, and that maybe hopefully she could shed some light on Tim's disappearance. During the interview conducted by the detectives, Larissa shared that she and Tim were going through a divorce and that they had a difficult time communicating verbally and that sometimes they went for three weeks without talking or exchanging emails. Tim and I are going through divorce and it's just been stretched out for a long time and we've had a difficult time communicating verbally so we don't we don't do that. I mean there's been times when we go for three weeks. Larissa stated that the last message she got from Tim was on the 8th of July, two days before he went missing, and it said he was planning to pick up Tyler at 6 p.m. on the 10th. Larissa also said that she had called him again around 8.30 p.m. and left a message asking him to call on the evening of the 9th of July once she learned that he was losing his job, saying that she had been concerned for him. She said that the last time she called Tim that night was around 10.30 p.m. and that she then drove by his house and knocked on the door around 10.30 or 10.45 p.m., after which she did not try to contact him any further. Police immediately knew that this was a lie, however, as during the search of Tim's property, his cell phone records showed that Larissa had called him at 2.02 a.m. on the 10th of July. Police confronted Larissa with this information, and she told them that she may have accidentally called him. She said that that evening she had fallen asleep on the couch, and when she awoke, it looked like her cell phone had been dialed, and she thought she must have rolled over and hit a button and accidentally called Tim, implying that she had Tim's number on speed dial. No phone calls or anything from him or anything in that time frame, no unusual activity, or was there? Not that I recall. I remember waking up on the couch and I had my cell phone and it looked like I might have 
hit a number or something. When asked to see her phone to check if Tim was indeed in her list of speed dials, Larissa pushed back. Frustrated and knowing that Larissa had lied, the interrogators took a break and went outside where they saw her car. When they peered inside the vehicle, they clearly saw her phone sitting there. They called her number to double check. It was indeed her phone. And when they saw it ring inside the car, they went back into the interrogation room to confront her once again. Larissa's demeanor immediately changed and it was clear to investigators that she was very nervous. Her hands were shaking and she was clearly trying to manipulate the phone. Concerned that she might try to change some of its contents, the detectives asked if they could see it and as they suspected, Tim's number was not on speed dial. Two, two is CCRL, it's your office. Three is Caught in another lie, Larissa had no other option but to change her story and to admit having called Tim late that night. Okay. I made the call. Okay. I was not sleeping well. I hadn't slept well for a while. Why did you feel a need not to tell us about that? I don't know. Because I, I guess the call was so late at night, it seemed kind of a mistake. She admitted that she had made the call to Tim's house because she just wanted to make sure there would be no trouble on the Saturday because she was afraid Tim would not return Tyler from visitation in time for their trip that following day. Larissa said Tim was kind of asleep during the phone call and she estimated that the call was less than 30 seconds long. Are you the type of person that could have anything to do with him missing? No, not at all. No, I don't, I couldn't do, I can't. I mean, I, we've had our problems and I dislike him and, you know, and, and we haven't been able to get along, but I, I, I couldn't do that to my son. I couldn't do that. She admitted that she had made a mistake by not telling the detectives, but she denied being deceitful about anything else and stated that she did not know what could have happened to him between the time of the phone call and the time of Tim's exit interview with HR. Is he capable of just packing up, cashing up a bunch of money and going somewhere else thinking I need maybe when you to snap and do that? Is he capable of doing that? I don't know that. Do I think, don't know. You think he would leave your son and not see him? My gut tells me that no, that he probably wouldn't do that. Despite admitting that she had lied, she denied having hurt Tim and detectives had no choice but to let her go. The following day on the Saturday, 12th of July, a shaken and nervous Larissa then spoke to her friend and colleague Tammy. She told Tammy that she thought the police had bugged her landline and that she was certain the police thought she had something to do with Tim's disappearance. Tammy told Larissa that if this was indeed the case and that they truly suspected her, they would probably issue a search warrant and look through her things at her home and at her place of work. Angrily, Larissa replied to her friend Tammy that they could not do that as she was going out of town the next day with Tyler to Disney World and then to Missouri but Tammy just told her that they indeed could. In that exact moment, Tammy said Larissa acted very strangely and abruptly told Tammy to look after Tyler because she needed to go to her office to take care of some things, including payroll and to pay some bills. Much to Tammy's frustration, 
Larissa left and headed to her office, disappearing for hours. Tammy kept calling Larissa whilst she was gone to tell her that she had plans that afternoon, so could not look after Tyler that much longer. Larissa finally answered her phone calls and told Tammy it was okay and that she could go home and leave Tyler because he would be fine. The next day, on Sunday, the 13th of July, Larissa and Tyler left on their trip. The day after that, on Monday, the 14th of July, Tammy went to the office and here she spoke to another one of Larissa's colleagues, Leslie. Leslie told Tammy that she had been working that Saturday when she saw Larissa come into the lab. Larissa had then asked Leslie to rent her a U-Haul truck that afternoon in Leslie's name, not her own, and Leslie found this incredibly strange. Leslie said that at the U-Haul place, Larissa was thirsty and dirty and had scrapes on her shins and had blood on her shoes. Larissa claimed that she had smashed her toe while moving some items. On hearing this, Tammy knew that something strange was going on and she urged Leslie to call the police and let them know about Larissa's suspicious behaviour. Following their questioning with Larissa, police also interviewed more people that had been close to Tim Schuster. James Fagoni's name kept coming up and they knew that James worked with Larissa and often looked after Tim and Larissa's son, Tyler, so they brought James in for questioning on the 14th of July. During this first questioning, James admitted that he and Larissa had broken into Tim's house a year prior and had stolen some of his items. He explained that as a thanks, Larissa had let him take some of Tim's electronics and that would be why James had some of Tim's belongings in his house. They naturally found this to be suspicious, but with no further explanation as to Tim's whereabouts, they let James go. Later that afternoon, police received the strange information from Leslie and Tammy saying that two days prior, on Saturday the 12th of July, Larissa had asked Leslie to rent a U-Haul truck in her name and had then disappeared for a few hours. Leslie was also able to confirm to them that Larissa had access to a storage unit as it turned out, almost a year previously, on the 8th of August, 2002, Larissa had asked Leslie to rent her a storage unit at Security Public Storage, which was a couple of miles from the lab. Larissa had told Leslie that she wanted to store some things that she wished to keep hidden from Tim, so she asked that Leslie rent it in her own name. Immediately, the police knew that this was vital information, and they looked further into this lead. As soon as officers arrived at the storage unit, they were hit with the overwhelming smell of decaying flesh. Inside the storage unit, they found a blue 55-gallon barrel and they immediately knew this was where the smell was coming from. Inside the barrel, they found the partial remains of Tim Schuster floating in liquid and this liquid was later identified as a mix of hydrochloric acid and the liquefied remains of Tim Schuster, as the rest of his body had dissolved by this point. With the remaining parts of Tim's body, an autopsy was conducted, and here they found the presence of another chemical, chloroform. They concluded that Tim's cause of death was the probable combined effects of acute chloroform exposure and hydrochloric acid immersion, although it was very possible that death resulted solely from the chloroform. They also could not determine whether Tim was alive when he was placed in the barrel. The following day, on the 15th of July, they re-brought James in for questioning. 
and this time he revealed much, much more. During his police interrogation, James revealed that he and Larissa were responsible for the disappearance and murder of Tim Schuster. James admitted that on the night of July 9th, 2003, he and Larissa decided that they were going to teach Tim a lesson, and they went to his house with zip ties, a stun gun and chloroform. In order to get Tim to open the door, Larissa called him at 2.02am and lied to Tim, saying that their son Tyler was ill. This was the phone call police had found on Tim's cell phone. The pair then used chloroform and a stun gun. They then put him in James's truck and drove him to Larissa's house. He opened the door and stunned him and took him down and she bound him. And then, you know, before I know it, you know, I couldn't tell if he was alive or not. James admitted that they then put an unconscious Tim into the 55-gallon barrel head first. He then said that Larissa grabbed some glass bottles and started pouring liquid on top of Tim's body. And James said he assumed it was hydrochloric acid. And how many got poured in? Um, I think she did one or two or three, and then she, she couldn't handle any more. And how many did you pour after that? I didn't pour. James claimed that the barrel remained in Larissa's tool shed overnight, and that after her initial questioning by the police, Larissa panicked and told James that they needed to move the barrel to the office, where they then added more acid. After Larissa spoke with her friend Tammy, James received another panicked call from her, telling him that they needed to move the barrel again, and she asked James to rent a U-Haul truck, but this time he refused. She was saying, you know, you know, get a friend to rent a truck or whatever, and, and you know, I didn't want to, I wasn't going to, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to get pulled in any further, it was terrible enough as it is. James told the investigators that there was never any plan to murder Tim, they just wanted to teach him a lesson, but police knew otherwise, and they arrested James and charged him with first-degree murder. The following day, on the 16th of July, police waited at the St. Louis airport in Missouri, and the moment Larissa stepped off the plane, they arrested her also and transported her back to California, where she was charged with first-degree murder. Despite her arrest, Larissa refused to talk, and she immediately got herself an attorney, so investigators had to find more evidence to go alongside James Fagoni's confession. They found an empty glass bottle in James's bedroom, which he later confirmed contained the chloroform they had used. At Larissa's lab, they gathered files and computers and searched the premises, and here they found six empty acid bottles in a dumpster outside. They also conducted a forensic analysis of her office computer, and it showed that on the 13th of June, Larissa had conducted internet searches with the terms acid digestion tissues, acid digestion animal tissues, and sulfuric acid. They also found receipts for three cases of hydrochloric acid and one case of sulfuric acid, and each case contained six two-and-a-half-litre bottles. Although her lab had hydrochloric acid and sulfuric acid and acetate on hand, very little was used. In Leslie's experience, probably no more than one bottle of hydrochloric acid would be used in an entire year, so it was strange that the lab purchased so much. 
it was found that these orders were made between the 13th of June and the 2nd of July, all by Larissa Schuster. Larissa had also ordered an acid-resistant 55-gallon barrel back on the 30th of April, and this was sent to the lab. Staff immediately thought that this was bizarre, as this was not the type of barrel that the lab normally used. She told her staff that this barrel was for yard clippings, although she later asked a lab employee if he thought a body would fit inside it. That same month, a neighbour saw Larissa moving the blue barrel to the side of her garage. In her possession were two receipts from a store about halfway between her lab and the storage unit. Both receipts showed purchases made just after 7.30pm on Saturday the 12th of July, including air fresheners. In her possession, they also found a card with the storage facility entry instructions and a code number, as well as all the physical evidence. It seemed that Larissa could not keep her mouth shut. A couple of times, Larissa told an employee that if she could kill Tim and get away with it, she would and she once asked them if she knew anyone who would rough up Tim or kill him. Larissa had also told her manicurist and friend, Terry Lopez, that she prayed every night that Tim would die. She asked her colleague, Leslie, if her boyfriend knew anyone who could rough up somebody. She also told a fellow member of her church choir that she would do everything in her power to keep Tim from getting the business. She asked the barbecue repairman if he would go to Tim's house stun him to the ground with a stun gun when he answered the door, and then flag her down, where she would be waiting a couple of houses away. Using James and Larissa's phone records, as well as the storage company's logs, the detectives managed to retrace her steps over the past five days, and the trail matched James's confession completely. It was also said that on the morning of the 10th of July, when Larissa arrived at work, she was complaining about her shoulder, she said she had hurt it by working out earlier that week. That same day, when Tim did not show up for the scheduled exchange custody of Tyler, Larissa also told Terry Lopez that she had a feeling the divorce was finally going to go her way. James had been charged with first-degree murder and kidnapping. It was assumed that a plea agreement could be made with James so that he could testify in Larissa's trial, but he refused to make a deal. So they proceeded with prosecution, and he went to trial in November of 2006, before Larissa's scheduled court date. His defense was that Larissa was the mastermind of Tim Schuster's murder, and that he only acted as an accessory to murder after the fact, under duress, maintaining that Larissa had threatened his life it was also revealed that James accepted $2,000 from Larissa in exchange for help with the slaying. Defense testimony came from James's friends, co-workers, and Larissa's friend and manicurist, Terry Lopez, all of whom stated that Larissa was a very controlling and forceful person. However, James had already confessed to the crime, which he had unsuccessfully tried to retract. Jurors were shown the video of James's police interrogation, where he said, I held the barrel for her, put him in, poured all the solution, and she like couldn't stand it. So she said, put it on, the lid on. So I helped her put the lid on, and she put it in the shed. Although James was acquitted of kidnapping, he was found guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life without parole. Read the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, James Spagoni, 
guilty of first-degree murder of Timothy Schuster. Larissa's trial began on the 22nd of October 2007, more than four years after she was charged. Her trial had to be moved from Clovis, California to LA due to the pre-trial publicity as she had now been dubbed the Acid Lady by various media outlets. Not only did she have the benefit of the trial moving, but James was not on the prosecution witness list as he had not accepted a plea agreement in return for testifying against her. Since the prosecution could not use James's testimony, the judge ruled that James's interrogation footage could not be shown either. Therefore, their case relied entirely on circumstantial evidence, but the prosecution fought hard. Prosecutors stated how Larissa had access to all the chemicals used in the murder, being that she was a biochemist in a research lab and that she had purchased an unnatural and unnecessary amount of stock. They also played the graphic phone messages from Larissa that Tim had saved on his answering machine. I hope you burn in hell. Prosecutors alleged to the jury that Larissa had attempted to solicit Tim's murder before, believing that she could get away with it. They called up several witnesses to the stand that confirmed that Larissa had spoken to them about threatening to kill Tim, including Terry Lopez. Her colleague Tammy also testified and told everyone about Larissa's trip to the office that Saturday after Tim's disappearance. They also brought up all the computer and receipt evidence, but the defense fought back, saying that none of that evidence directly connected her to the murder, although her accomplice, James, did not testify in her trial. Larissa decided to take the witness stand in her own defense. Did you kill your husband? No, I did not kill my husband. On the stand, Larissa testified how she had no foreknowledge of the murder and that James was actually Tim's killer. She claimed that on return to her house after her first initial police questioning, James was there babysitting her son Tyler and James admitted to killing Tim. She stated that James had told her, I heard him say something like, there had to be an accident and Tim is dead. I thought he was joking. Larissa said that she immediately panicked and told James that he had to get rid of the body as she knew his murder would be pinned on her. She said that instead of calling the police, she decided to help move and get rid of Tim's body. And that explained her activities on that Saturday. When confronted over the phone messages on Tim's answering machine, Larissa replied with, It is something that I'm really ashamed about. You have to realize that is something, a result of many accumulative things. She also maintained that the reason for the large amount of chemicals at her lab were not to be used for the murder, but for a wholesale cleaning of the items at the lab. Larissa said she had ordered three cases of hydrochloric acid in the days leading up to the murder, but it was to be used to clean glassware at her lab. Finally, however, on the 12th of December, 2007, she was found guilty of first-degree murder with the special circumstance of financial gain. On the 16th of May, 2008, sentencing took place, and a total of seven people addressed Larissa directly and even with all the emotions, she never cried and did not say anything. One of the powerful victim impact statements came from her daughter, Kristen. My heart has been broken, ripped out of my chest, stomped on, and then beat to a pulp. 
May your present and next life be filled with as much pain as you inflicted upon my father. Maybe later in life I can learn to forgive you, but I highly doubt it. So this is goodbye, not just for now, but for good. This is goodbye as your daughter. Tim's mother, Shirley Schuster, said, I can't even imagine his last hours and the pain he must have gone through. How I wish I could have been there to help him with his pain. Finally, Larissa Schuster was sentenced to life in prison without parole, and she was ordered to pay for Tim's burial expenses. For a period, Larissa was housed at Valley State Prison for Women in California. However, she was later moved, and as of 2022, she is currently incarcerated in Central California Women's Facility. On the 9th of April 2021, Tim's brother Ted received a letter explaining that Larissa had sent a request to the office of California Governor asking for clemency. The letter explained that if Ted wanted to oppose the clemency application, he had to send a written statement to the district attorneys as soon as possible. Tim's brother Ted said he wasn't surprised when he received the letter, saying, you just never knew when it would happen. She's playing the system again. She knows how to manipulate people. She did it with the guy who helped her. I saw the toll it took on my mother. When we went through her stuff after she died, we found a folder. She would sit and read those trial transcripts. She had every page curled back. That's how often she had gone through those and read them. So no, I don't think there's any way that I could forgive her. I know there's probably some of my other family members who have, but there's sure a lot of them who haven't. In the past few years, Larissa herself has also participated in a video series on YouTube that has now been taken down. Here she was corresponding with a man only identified as Big White, and they wrote letters back and forth to one another. In one of the letters, Larissa wrote that she had done very well here in prison and had no problems, but that she didn't fit in and didn't ever intend to. One letter stated that she was studying to become a certified alcohol and drug counsellor. The letter said, Once I complete the education, I have to do 255 hours of practice, and then I can sit for my exam. I will be able to use a certificate out in the community, hopefully one day when I get a chance at parole. She said, Prison is a temporary place for me. I have to learn to make the best out of every day. I've learned so much about myself in here that I am thankful in a way that I've had the opportunity to explore myself in ways I would never have been able to. At least now, I understand more about what happened to me to make the horrible decisions I made. Despite Larissa's wishes, I'm sure many of you out there would agree with me in saying I hope she never ever gets out of prison and is never granted parole. I hope her and James are locked away forever, as what they did to poor Tim is completely unbelievable. Tim was just trying to move on with his life, have a fresh start, and get custody of his son. The way they murdered Tim is truly one of the most harrowing ways I have ever heard, and my heart goes out to Tim's family, in particular to Tim's children, Kristen and Tyler. I can't imagine what it must feel like to have your mother kill your own father. I hope wherever they are today, they are doing okay. And as always, I want to finish off this case by saying, rest in peace, Timothy Schuster.